So here we go. Everybody do me a favor. Turn your Bible open to Matthew chapter 3. This is a, this is a uh, passage that we're extremely familiar with. We've gone over it and over it and over it because it plays a crucial role in the life of Israel. But what we're talking about today is the topic of baptism. And the reason why is because at noon today, we are uh, given access to go into uh, Rush Pool, and we will uh, dress in our proper attire, and we will be baptizing six people today, uh, which I'm very excited about. Now, here's the great thing about this. I'm actually only baptizing one person today, because the other five are children. And the five children that are getting baptized, I've talked with each one of their parents about them administering the baptism. And here's the reason why. Parents are the disciplers of their homes. Their children are their mission field. And so therefore, they are directly responsible for leading their child in the ways of righteousness by constantly pointing them to the Scriptures for the rule of life and practice, decision-making, Everything, everything draws back to this. It is a parent's responsibility to train their child. That doesn't just mean stop, don't do that, be quiet, sit down, stop kicking her. That's not just those things. It is also integrating the scriptures into everything that they learn. And so I've asked for these parents to step up and do that. And all of them have gladly stepped into that role. And uh, thought we might have to calm Corey down just a little bit, how excited he was about that. Um, he needs a sedative or something, I don't know. But calm down. It's real good. But yeah, he was very excited about that. So now, here's what we need to do is, we need to break apart this idea of baptism so that we fully understand it. Because, for what the scripture has to say about it, it seems largely neglected what we find. If you study it out, you actually find some things that you didn't expect to see. And then when you end up with abuses of it, you end up having divisions in the body of Christ. And there is nothing that I've found in the Bible besides false doctrine that is more uh, ugly in God's sight than divisions in the body. He hates divisions in the body. So let's start something very basic. Let me give you this word here, and, and uh, Mitch can bring it up on the screen. Baptizo is the Greek word that we're going to be looking at. reason why we're starting in the New Testament examining this idea is because, honestly, the Old Testament doesn't really have anything to say about it. The Jews had things like purification rites and washings and things like that, but nothing in the sense of what it actually would consider, or we would consider to be baptism, what baptism looks like. And so if you notice some of the definition, if you want to write it down, the actual word baptizo means to dip repeatedly to immerse or to submerge is the idea to submerge something in fact if you want to talk about its secular use you know outside of we talk about biblical use its secular use and just regular everyday first century greek understanding would be the idea if is if a ship had sunk is the idea it is dipped immersed baptized bloop, under think titanic okay that idea Fully immersed, fully submerged, fully overwhelmed is the idea. Now, this comes from another word known as bapto, B-A-P-T-O. And when we deal with the idea of bapto, its basic meaning is to dip in, 
or it's the idea of to immerse something, or how they would normally use it is any time that you had someone who dealt in fabrics in the first century, purple was an extremely popular color at that time. So if you had somebody that could take a garment and dip it into a vat and bring it out and it's a different color, that's the idea of bapto. The idea of getting it all fully covered, and when you pull it out, it's a completely different color. Or we would say it this way, because it's an acceptable understanding of the word. It is an identification with the color in the vat and what it portrays. Now, has anybody here ever tie-dyed a shirt? Right? Come on, you guys who grew up in the 60s, raise your hand. Okay, you tie-dyed it, Grateful Dead Bears and the whole thing. Come on. So... If you've ever done that, you get the idea of what it is to take a white shirt and to completely change its color. In fact, in some situations, if you didn't know any better, you wouldn't know what the color was beforehand because it had been completely identified with something else. Now, real quick, this word, baptizo, is what's known in, the, in, in dealing with the languages as a transliteration. It's not a translation. It's a translation. Literation. And here's what we mean by that. In taking this basic word, if you notice with baptizo, everybody see it up there? Well, notice if you just remove the O off of there and you slap on an E, we have what word? Baptize. Notice that the translators didn't see the need to take a word like this and try to come up with something else in the English language. They might have said something like dunk. Might have been what it is, right? Because LeBron James is going to baptizo the ball. That type of idea. Maybe. But notice that they didn't come up with a word like dunk. And I think part of it might be because of the semantic meaning and the significant meaning as far as Christianity alone is concerned. Uh, to give you another example, and this is the verb use of the word, the noun use of the word is baptisma, okay, which is the idea of B-A-P-T-I-S-M-A. A, okay, so if you just take that off there, all of a sudden you realize that what you have is baptism is the idea. We're going to have a baptism. It's a noun that you're dealing with. So they didn't really translate this into another word. It's a transliteration, meaning that they kept the Greek and they modified it into an English word that we could understand. The problem that we find when we look in the scriptures is, is there's not just one baptism. And there's not just two baptisms. There are eight different baptisms in Scripture, just the New Testament. And so my goal today is to walk with you through all eight baptisms to see what they look like. See, told you, you got to have your hand ready for today, right? We're going to look here starting in Matthew 3, and we're going to look at the very first baptism. In fact, this is the first instance where we see baptism come on the scene. This first baptism is the baptism of repentance by John the Baptist. That's what this is. So if you're wanting to write down eight different kinds of baptism, number one, <coughs> baptism of repentance is the idea. Notice what it says here. Chapter 3 of Matthew, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now church, are we familiar with this? We are. At nauseum, preacher, praise God. Verse 3. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. Anybody going to lunch today? Mm. Notice it says here, Then Jerusalem 
was going out to him in all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. So notice he's got a massive audience. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. The reason for this baptism is that they were being baptized because they had sins that needed to be confessed. What is the command given? Make straight the paths of the Lord. Now this is extremely interesting because this baptism was for Israel only as a nation. This call to be baptized was that when they would be dunked down under the water and brought up, they would start confessing audibly all of their sins. Why? Because confession of sin removes obstacles so that the Savior can work. If we want to understand sometime why somebody might not be very responsive to our sharing of the gospel to them, chances are that they've got a whole lot of sin that is standing in the way and it is so hard in their heart that they are in a, in a mode of refusal. This idea here with John's ministry was a preparatory ministry. The Messiah is coming. Confess your sin, get the junk out of the way, and make a straight path so that when he shows up, he can step right in and do what he needs to do. This was a call to Israel. So the first one that we see is a baptism of repentance. If you also want to put this down as a reference next to it, Acts 19 verses 1 through 5. That will also help you understand that. Matthew 3, 1 through 6 and Acts 19, 1 through 5. Let's go to the next one. Look over at verse 11. This is John. He's talking to the Pharisees. This is a fun conversation. And he says here, verse 11 of chapter 3, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. There's baptism number one, right? But notice what he says. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. Now watch this. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. There is a baptism of the Holy Spirit and a baptism of fire. And what we actually see is there are two baptisms of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, not just one. So notice this first one, speaking of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we find later on in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. In fact, if you wouldn't mind, put your finger here and turn there with me real quick so we can see it. Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. And if you have uh, your little notes in the margin, probably the cross-references and things, those cross-references are undoubtedly going to direct you to this point so that you can see how it all connects together. Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. This is Jesus, resurrected, ministering before He ascends. He's talking to the eleven. And it says here, gathering them together, verse 4, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Notice this. And the question in Scripture is always, is God faithful to His Word? If He's faithful to His Word, then what He says is right, and we have no excuse for not following through. So notice this. For what the Father had promised, which He said, you heard of from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit 
Not many days from now. Does everyone see the connection? The biblical connection, yes? Let's not sleep today, man. I got more pins to throw. Okay? Do we see the connection? And what do we know in Acts chapter 2 that the baptism of the Holy Spirit looked like? Then they start speaking about the wonders of God in other languages than what they knew, yes? And notice, it was a birth point for the church to take place. Now that was a one-time occurrence that happened in order to get people's attention. That's what took place then. So that fulfills what Jesus, or sorry, what John said about Jesus' baptism. But let's go back to the Matthew passage, and it seems kind of concerning that he would not only baptize with the Holy Spirit, okay, we see how that comes out in Scripture, but with fire. Fire means hell, does it? Not all the time, can it? It can. And so we have to let the context help us determine the meaning of what's going on. Thankfully, we have verse 12, the context to help us. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn. That sounds good, doesn't it? In fact, that kind of takes your mind to the parable of the wheat and tares, does it not? But look what it says after that. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What is the idea of the baptism of fire? What does this tell us from verse 12? What do you think? It seems to tell us that each one, whether it's a baptism in the Holy Spirit, and we know about Acts chapter 2, or if it's this baptism by fire, the people involved in that situation are fully immersed and identified with the situation. I have a feeling that when people are judged at the great white throne and step into the lake of fire, they are going to be fully engulfed and immersed in what's going on in that moment. And they will forever be identified with damnation because they did not receive Jesus Christ. Everybody see how this word baptism is used like that, yes? We good? Who's bored? Okay, see, I call myself to task on that. That's scary. All right, moving to the next one here. Baptism number three. Look down at verse 13. The baptism of Jesus. Yes, even Jesus got baptized. So we need to understand that properly. Did Jesus sin? Okay, so that's a little concerning. Why did he get baptized if he didn't have sins? Well, number one might be a good indicator, and here it is. Baptism doesn't wash away sin. Jesus Christ, by his blood, takes away sin. And it doesn't just take away sin, it takes away sins of the entire world. Now let's watch this. Chapter 3, 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee, up north, at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him, which was down in the south. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answering him said, now watch Jesus' words. It's really important to understand what's going on here. Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting. In other words, it's proper. It's right for it to happen like this. For us to, and here's the reason why he did it, to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. Jesus' argument at that moment was so convincing to John the Baptist that he went from protest to submission. He took that moment and he baptized God. Now think about that for a minute. Anybody want to stand in line to baptize God? Seems pretty interesting, doesn't it? I would probably mess it up. 
I would probably be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing this. It's so, right? I would forget about it. You're baptizing God. And not only that, when he came up, we know the history of it. The Spirit descended on him like a dove, and they heard an audible voice. This is my son, and with him I am well pleased. Good stuff, right? Why did Jesus get baptized? Do we know? Well, who was coming out to get baptized? Righteous people? No, in fact, the people that thought they were righteous, John the Baptist called them out. You brood of vipers? Who warned you about the wrath to come? Why does God have wrath? Because of what? Sin. Because of sin. His wrath is against the sin of the world. So if that's the case, and Jesus says, no, I have to be baptized, it's fitting, it's right, to fulfill all righteousness, even though He did nothing wrong, by being baptized, He is identifying with sinners. Does He not take on our sin? Does He not take on the sins of the world? See, we haven't even moved into the idea of Christian baptism yet. This is still speaking of the baptism of repentance that concerns Israel. So notice what he's doing. He is taking sins. He is identifying, immersing himself as one who will die for sins. That's baptism number three. How about number four? Baptism number four. Let's move over to the book of Mark. Just the next gospel over. Mark chapter 10. If you got somebody next with you that's having a little bit of trouble, share your Bible with them, help them. Buy them some tabs on CBD. I don't know. Be good to help. Now this is this conversation with James and John. Does everybody remember when James and John asked their mommy to go talk to Jesus for them? Seems kind of weird because they were traveling with him the whole time. Well, mom, we need you to ask this kind of thing. But here's what's interesting. They ask, Jesus, do whatever we ask of you. Now, have you ever had a more open-ended question in your life? You ever tried to pull that on somebody? Okay, now I'm going to ask you something. And I need you to say yes, but I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. You ever done that? I've tried that on my wife a couple of times. It doesn't work. It doesn't fly with her. She doesn't buy it. But notice, they try this. They said, what are you asking? They said, hey, when you come into your kingdom, John wants to sit on the right, James wants to sit on the left. Oh, is that all? Is that all you boys are wanting by asking me now? Look what he says, verse 38. Mark 10, 38. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Right? You don't have a clue what you've just requested. Look what he says. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or, notice the parallel that Jesus uses here, to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Does everybody see that drinking and baptism are paralleled together? What is the idea there? Well, let's keep going. Look at verse 39 here. Notice 39, they said to him, we are able, and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. What is Jesus talking about here? Jesus is talking about suffering. Jesus is talking about the trials that he would undertake. 
And the way that he would undertake these trials would be fully. He would be fully identified as the suffering servant. He would be completely immersed and overwhelmed with grievous situations. Could John and James do this? And here is the reason why. A prominent theme all throughout Scripture, and when we talk about eternal rewards, we'll touch on this, is the idea that suffering precedes glory. If you are willing to suffer for Jesus in this life now, He will bless you with great riches in the life to come. He will administer lovingly, lavishly, desirous of us to have them, rewards upon His children. Because we live not for ourselves now, but for Him. Jesus, knowing all things, said, Yep, you're going to go through this. You're going to drink this cup. You're going to suffer for my name's sake. It's going to happen. Baptize. Identified. Overwhelmed with it. How about the next one? Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians 10. First Corinthians chapter 10. This is baptism number 5. Paul just got done telling them that the Christian life is like a race. That we need to run it with endurance. And the reason why we run it the way that we do is because there is an imperishable crown that is waiting at the end. So we are to discipline our bodies. We are to keep ourselves in check. We are to forsake all things that would tie us down and hinder us from running an effective race. And we are to devote ourselves wholly to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he moves into this, chapter 10.1. For, and that's the reason that the four is there, stemming from that idea. I do not want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be misinformed or ignorant, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Everybody see that? Under the cloud and passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now stop for a second. If you remember when the children of Israel came out of Egypt in the Exodus, they were led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When it came to a point where it seemed like that their lives were going to be taken from them because Pharaoh and his army were chasing after them, and the Lord placed a thick cloud in between them, he opened up the Red Sea, and he passed through them. In other words, they were baptized, they were identified, immersed, and overwhelmed with the guidance of God as given to Moses in the cloud, and the deliverance or the redemption of God as seen coming through the sea. They were identified, immersed with it able to take part in it as Moses was. Notice that he says in verse 3, and all ate the same spiritual food, being manna, and all drank the same spiritual drink, the drink that came from the rock. For they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. It was a representative of Jesus and what he would give, sustaining them. So notice this baptism here is an identification with God's guidance and God's redemption. But the idea is, is that Israel was fully relatable and immersed in this idea just as Moses was. Just because he was leading them out didn't make it any different. They were full partakers of it as well. 
How about the sixth one? Look, turn over to chapter 12. Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. This is the idea that believers are baptized into the body of Christ. Look at chapter 12. Let's start in verse 12. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so is Christ. In other words, Christ is not divided. And since we are all different people, but we are all united in Christ, we are all members one of another, united in His body. Again, the New Testament has a great deal to say about the unity of the body of Christ. But look at verse 13. For by one Spirit, or in one Spirit, being the Holy Spirit, we were all baptized, we were all immersed, identified, dipped into, is the idea, one body, being the church, the body of Christ. And notice this. Whether Jew or Greek, that didn't matter. Whether slave or free, didn't matter. And we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. In other words, when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, immediately at that moment, you are baptized into what is known as the church. You are immediately identified with the church, immersed in it, dipped into it. Remember, guys, the church is not four walls and a steeple. The church is a body of believers that have come under redemption, that are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and are now have this new identification. We are now completely submerged in the body of Christ being the church. How about number seven? This is a good one. Now we're getting to one we're a little bit more comfortable with. Acts chapter 8. Turn back to that to the left. Acts chapter 8. This is water baptism. The idea of water baptism. Acts chapter 8 verse 12. Here we find Philip has been preaching the gospel. Looking at Acts chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed, Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God. Now watch this. And the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. In other words, faith comes first. And then once someone has believed in Christ, they are then baptized into water as an identification. In fact, if we move forward to when we have the opportunity of Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch, look over at the end of this chapter to verse 36. Actually, let's go back to, to uh, 35. Apologize, Mitch. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now, this eunuch was in his chariot, hanging out on a coffee break, and he decided he was going to open up a scroll, and he's reading Isaiah, and he's not for sure what it's talking about. So, he asks Philip, and Philip sees the wide open door for evangelism, and he steps up, and he tells him all about how this relates to the person of Jesus Christ. And notice, verse 36, As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, water! What prevents me from being baptized? 
And this is debatable whether or not this verse is actually in the original manuscripts, but it says, And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he was baptized by him. Baptism in water is something that occurs after faith in Christ. Now, the problem that we have in some instances is this has become a subject of abuse. Because well-meaning and well-intentioned, you have the idea that no, actually baptism is connected to salvation and it's indispensable for someone's salvation. I think that we could all sit here and clearly say, without a shadow of a doubt, that if baptism in water is anything, it is a work. Would you agree? It's got to be. you got people putting their hands and taking the initiative to get something done. If I'm having to put my hands and take the initiative to get something done regarding my eternal standing with God, then the Savior on the cross is not enough to meet the need that I have. Does that make sense? Therefore, by me being mandated or encouraged to do this under the pretense that it will somehow solidify, complete, accomplish my salvation, I now become a co-redeemer with Christ. Now some of you know me a little bit better than others. And I know you're thinking in your heart of hearts, with good intentions, I don't want Him redeeming nothing regarding me. Why? Because you know it won't go well. That's why. Because you know I'm not going to do a good enough job. Because you know and somehow I'm going to fail. Remind me to tell you the story sometime when we put my son's bed together. Let's move on. Everybody look at 1 Corinthians 1 as my wife hangs her head in shame. 1 Corinthians 1. And let's see an instance of this where Paul had to deal with it. Paul had to deal with the church in Corinth abusing the idea of baptism. And Mitch, I know it says verse 11, but let's start in verse 10. It's important to see where we're going. Now, everybody's familiar with what's going on in Corinth, right? They're abusing everything. Baptism just happens to be one of a buffet of things that they've taken advantage of and run wild with it. So now, watch Paul's attitude in this situation. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. Now, I exhort you, brethren, stop, saved or unsaved, Saved people. He's calling them brethren. He's not doubting their salvation at all. Watch what he says here. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no division among you, but that you be made complete, you be made mature, in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now watch this. For I've been informed concerning you. In other words, something came down the prayer chain that I need to talk to you about. Those are always good conversations, aren't they? Notice. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people. Now, notice that Chloe probably picked up a pen and was like, Now, Paul, I told you this. Why you got to be telling people it was me? Little did she know it would be Scripture, and we would all know it's Chloe's fault, right? She's the one. But it's not gossip because it's according to truth. So notice. By Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, 
And I am of Apollos. And I am of Cephas, or Peter. I am of Christ. In other words, these were factions and divisions that existed within the same church. Imagine one church having denominations within its doors. That's what's going on. Well, I'm better because of this person baptizing me. Well, I'm better because of this person baptizing me. Notice what he says here, verse 13. Has Christ been divided? Is Christ divided? No. So you get out your pen and you write, no. Notice it says here, Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Was Paul crucified for me? No. There's no way I'd be saved if he was. But notice he says here, or were you baptized in the name of, the, of Paul? Anybody here baptized in the name of Paul? Hopefully not. But what does it say? Verse 14. Watch Paul's sentiments towards the idea of what water baptism does. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Now watch this. For Christ did not send me to baptize. In other words, guys, you're making a big deal about the wrong subject. It's not about who baptized you. And not even necessarily the fact that you were baptized. That's not the central issue. But notice what it is. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, not manipulating the message. And here's the reason. Because if he did that, the cross of Christ would not, or sorry, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. In other words, he didn't try to coat the gospel with clever speech. Because if he did, the message of the gospel would have no effect. So I see Paul's attitude towards baptism. Yeah, I did it. I baptized this person, this person, this family. Beyond that, no. And I'm actually thankful to God that I didn't because y'all are acting like fools concerning it. You guys somehow think that the baptism is a badge of honor to make you better than your brothers and your sisters. This is an abuse. It's not a humble upholding of what it represents. Now these are seven baptisms so far. The eighth one is the one that I'm most concerned with. And it's actually the eighth one is what makes the seventh one a reality that we still practice today. So now if you would, take your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. And Mitch, I'm pretty excited about this chapter, so I might go a little bit further. Romans chapter 6. Remember that whenever Paul writes, he has to anticipate the responses that his crowd might have to previous points that he's made. And so he starts out with a question that he's asking. What shall we say then? Look what he says. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? In other words, if I sin more, or, or let's say it this way, if grace is greater than all my sin, should I conclude that if I sin more, I will get more grace? Now that's just like a weaselly, fleshly, human-minded person to do that, isn't it? 
And Paul knows. Paul's very much in contact with the human condition. Because what we're always trying to do is we're trying to find the loophole. How is there some way that I cannot be deemed totally guilty as I am? And if grace is such a good thing as Paul has told us, well, man, I want a lot of grace. And if the way I get a lot of grace is I got a lot of sin, why not sin more? Does it make any sense? No. In fact, Paul uses the double negative here. If you remember, in the Spanish translations, no way, Jose. Look at verse 2. May it never be. No is the idea. And look what he says. How shall we who died to sin? Now watch this. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? When you hear the gospel message, Jesus Christ has died on the cross for your sins. He has risen on the third day. If you believe in Him, He will forgive your sins and give you eternal life is a free gift, and you are now clothed in the righteousness of God Himself in His sight. If you believe that, if you are convinced that that is true, that's what belief is. Faith is a conviction that something is true. If that's you, you are now dead to sin. Your spirit has now died. Done. No longer responsive. In other words, the thing that was controlling you, those chains have been abolished and exploded. And they are no longer linked to you. You are now linked to someone else. You are dead to sin. How many speeding tickets has a dead person received? None. Why? Because dead people don't sin. When you have died to sin, you can't sin it doesn't make any sense or in other words for a dead person to be put on trial for wrongdoing is irrational can you imagine when it comes time for them to take the stand makes no sense does it place your right hand place your right plate it's not even going to work is it you get nothing you have died to sin if you are a believer in christ you are dead to sin. How many different ways do I have to fashion it for us to truly believe it? You know that sin that you confess with 1 John 1, 9? You didn't have to sin. You know why? Because you're dead to it. That's the reality. The reality as far as what God has done in Christ is He has killed the body of sin. It is done. It has been nailed to the cross. Did Jesus die on the cross? Yes, and we identify with His crucifixion. We are now dead to sin. Now watch this. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? It makes no sense. Or, do you not know? Are you ignorant of the fact, verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into His death? Now notice, this is not talking about water baptism. In fact, this has nothing to do with water baptism. This is saying that if you have believed in Christ, immediately you have been immersed, identified, and overwhelmed with the death of Christ as far as God's sight is speaking. You have been baptized into His death. You are dead is the idea as far as sin is concerned now. 
But notice what it says. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, when you hear the gospel message, and you're convinced that it's true, you have now believed in Jesus. And at that moment, not only do you experience forgiveness of sins, not only is all shame and guilt absolved from your record, not only are you now given eternal life, forever life, to live, but that eternal life is a present reality known as the abundant life. And what Paul is saying here is when you believe, you die to the old you. The old you is dead. You have been buried, solidifying that fact. And just as Jesus raised from the dead, so you are raised to a brand new life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. Not a resale creation, not a I got it at goodwill creation, not you won't believe the yard sale deal that I scored creation. It is not polished up, smoothed over, added new paint. It is the old has passed away and the new has come. When Jesus came out of that tomb, he didn't come out the same person he went in as. He's different. He's raised to a new life. He does not need blood to survive. Walls do not stop him. He still likes to eat fish. It'll fit in good on Fridays, right? But he's a new creation. He has made that possible. I wish in every fiber in my being that we could understand the weight of this magnificent truth because it changes the way that you live life and make decisions it changes the way that you prioritize because what jesus did at the moment of faith was immersed you and identified you into the body of christ into the spirit of christ into jesus himself that's just three baptisms right there happening in one instance and we now have full immersion identification and are overwhelmed with those things We have been dipped. We are now pulled out as dyed garments and identify with those things. That we too, look at the end of verse 4, might walk, which means it's not a guaranteed thing. You could live in complete opposition or ignorance of your place in Christ, of your identity in Christ, but we might walk in a newness of life. Now watch this, verse 5. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death. Now stop. Is that true? Have you been united with Him in the likeness of His death? Yes. Yes. When Jesus died on the cross, somehow I died with Him, and all my sins are absolved and forgiven for my account. He cast them as far as the east is from the west. Let me ask you a question. Did you walk through these doors today coming in burdened? If you came in burdened by sin, disgusted at your own rebellion against God, overwhelmed with the idea of how lackadaisical and lazy we are in regards to living our lives for Him. It need not be so. We've been playing with dead people is our problem. 
We've been associating with corpses. We've been carrying on love affairs with the deceased. That is not the body of Christ. That sin is done. That person has been buried. There's a new person. There's a new life to live. It's completely different from how we used to settle for things and make decisions and directions that we used to go. No, Christ has made it new. Notice what he says. If we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self, our old man, was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Everybody see that done away with? Probably a better translation is brought to nothing. Make no mistake, guys. This flesh accomplishes zero. Anybody ever stepped out to do your own thing? Did it go well? Right? I'm going to live independently. How about this? What was the show we were watching last night with Hermie and Rudolph? We're watching Rudolph last night. Okay? The Misfit Nitwit song, right? That whole thing? And here's the thing. Hermie wants to be a dentist, right? But Hermie's not accepted by everybody. He's the misfit, so he's cast out. Rudolph's got a nose problem. So they cast him out. And and I was sitting there watching last night, and I thought, this fits too good, God. Thank you. And Hermie looks over at Rudolph. They meet each other out in the woods or something. They're both, oh, my life's terrible, right? And Hermie says, I wanted to be a dentist. They wouldn't accept me. So now I'm going to be independent. And Rudolph says, me too. I'm going to be whatever you said. And then he finally stutters it out. Independent. And then you know what they do after that? They buddy up together. And they sing a song together. And they pal around together. Why? Because they can't be independent. And I immediately thought in my mind, independence is a sin. Because it is throwing off everything that would seek to direct us and love us and care for us, especially in relationship to God. And say, God, I don't need you. I can do it on my own. That is the body of death that has been done away with. Rudolph needed Hermie. Hermie needed Rudolph. And that truth came out even though they declared their independence. Guess what? You can't deal with your sin on your own. It's impossible. You cannot deal with your sin on your own. Look at verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, obeying sin, sin being our master and yanking us around anywhere it wanted us to go. But look what it says here. Beautiful. Verse 7. For he who has died is free from sin. Like, I don't feel free from sin. Well, that might be because you're thinking of yourself in your direction, not in Jesus' direction and what He's done. Or if that's not how you think this morning, then chances are you're suffering from an identity crisis. Because the reality of your situation is only what God has to say about you because of what Jesus has done for you. So why is it that we baptize with water? We baptize with water, not because it adds something to salvation. It does not. We didn't bring up anything about infant baptism. Why? Because it's not in the Bible. Infants are never baptized for any reason whatsoever. 
Baptism doesn't make someone more saved. In fact, if we know our scriptures, we know for all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. What does it say? We don't know this verse. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all that I have commanded you or to observe all that I have commanded you. I'm with you to the end of the age. Why do we baptize? Because it's the first step of discipleship in their new life. It is setting them on a path of helping them to understand their identification with Christ. You have died, been buried, and have been raised to a newness of life, is the idea. When Jesus died on that cross, your sins were nailed to it. When He walked out of the tomb, you walked out with Him. It is a brand new life. So why do we celebrate the ordinance of baptism? We do it because it is a public representation of the fact that I have already been immersed into the Spirit of God in the church of God in Jesus Christ who has died for me. That's the idea. It has nothing to do with the water. We are simply celebrating what God has already done in the heart. That's the point behind baptism. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what your word clearly unfolds about baptism. Thank you, God, for the identification that we have with Christ, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that Jesus has done. Father, maybe we are wrestling with sin, struggling with sin, feel that sin has a hold on us this morning. The reality is, is Jesus has already set us free from all that. We simply need to be reminded and embrace our position in Him. Something that we already have, we're just not utilizing it. Help us, Father, to understand more fully the new life that we have as represented in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We ask it in His name. Amen.